This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Maggie. My name is Brian. And we're here. We have Tanya today on the podcast, and we're super excited to have her. So Tanya is a real estate investor, broker, property manager, and author. She came to the United States at the age of 20 after two years in Taiwan to study English literature at the University of Texas. While, while doing her PhD at UCSD, she, she discovered her passion for financial freedom after taking a few investment courses. She dropped out of her PhD program to pursue a real estate career and invest in multifamily properties in the greater Boston area. Tanya, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Brian, for the lovely introduction. And I also want to thank my friend, Christina Chi, for connecting us. I'm, I'm very excited about the uh, Asian Hustle Network. I watch a lot of the podcasts myself and mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the comments and posts and stuff like that. I'm very impressed with the uh, the rapid growth of this, this Facebook network and just connecting mm-hmm. entrepreneurs from um, all over the world. So I think it's very exciting and, and empowering. Definitely. To meet uh, Asians from like different all all different countries and different areas, and to share their experiences. So yeah, um, so a little bit about myself. Um, so yeah, see, originally from Taiwan, and so I was never the kind of person that was like trained to be in business. Or my parents were like regular like nine to five people. Like they, my mom was a teacher, and my dad started as an engineer, and later like went into sales. But then it was very much like um, corporate kind of career so growing up like like many Asians my belief was okay I'm going to go into the top school and get the best grade I'm gonna get the best job and I can have a great life and stuff like that and so I think that in many ways growing up in Asia like there was pretty much some similar mentality and except that I actually was not very practical at all like my dream was to become a writer like growing up and I that's why I studied English literature and so I decided in my sophomore year when I was in Taiwan, I actually got into the most competitive high school and college in Taiwan. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm not sure like um, how many of you are kind of familiar with the, edu- the education system in Asia, but it's very like cutthroat and very much like study, study, study. Mm-hmm. And like you have this like national entrance exam only, offered only once a year. And if you don't do well, like you have to repeat the whole year and take the same exam again. So mm-hmm. like coming from that system, I was just kind of like, oh, it's really disillusion and but then I was like I had this dream I want to come to America and then you know my kids can have a like a easier like I might in my mind I think living in America is have this like high school soap opera kind of image and I was like oh yeah I want to my kids to have that lifestyle so mm-hmm. yeah and so in my sophomore year I was like okay I want to transfer to America I want to have the American college experience so I actually had a college experience in Taiwan and college experience in America mm-hmm. and after I came here I, I really had a great time and the first two years was kind of hard like kind of transitioning because I didn't kind of have 
have the I would say it would have been easier if I came as a freshman than I came like I was a junior when I came here and then it's like oh I had to apply for grad school right away like in my junior year so mm -hmm. I thought it was like a lot of transition but at the same time I'm very grateful because I was able to have the sort of college experience in both countries and so I had an academic mindset pretty much until like um, I think it was like Around age 22, age 23, I was in my PhD, like that I got into like straight out of college. And I was like, huh, I feel like there was a great disconnect between the things that I was learning and kind of the practical skills in the real world and the economy was not doing so well at the time. So I realized, oh, if I did the numbers, uh, the num there's like 4,000 people competing for one spot in academia for like studying English literature. And I still had a really bad accent at the time. And so it's pretty, so I decided that to take some investment courses. And then I was really fascinated by like the, f the compound interest, the concept of compound interest and how like you use money to like work for you, like money works for you 24 hours instead of like, you know, we only have so many hours we have to sleep and eat, you know, and there's so much limitations to what we can do. But then by leveraging like the, the compound interest and we can do so much more. So that's when I decided to look into like different kinds of investment and and I just decided that real estate was the most powerful and easiest way for average people to um, accumulate network and kind of turn their life around because of the opportunity to um, leverage our down payment to um to buy more properties and magnify the return so Definitely. so i decided to drive out my phd program in my second year and then just um get my real estate license and mm -hmm. obviously i live in texas and california and then moved to boston and so kind of had like various perspectives and i myself enjoy travels a lot so mm -hmm. i like, like every time i go to a new country like whether it's europe or different parts of asia i like to check out the real estate markets in those areas and mm -hmm. i just like to like kind of learn about like different markets and, and stuff like that so if you trace it back a bit what did your parents say when you decided to drop out your phd to get a real estate license yeah, because I'm assuming none of your family members are in real estate, right? Or they did they like know very little about, you know, investing into real estate mm -hmm. or just, you know, the, the field in general. So what did they have to say when you're like, okay, I'm going to drop out of my PhD to pursue <laughs> in real estate, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, honestly, my my dad was not a typical Asian dad. Like from the very beginning, he's like, "Oh yeah, you want to study English literature? Go for it! Like <laughs> you should pursue your passion." And actually, when I wanted to drop out and say, "I'm gonna do something practical and try to uh -huh. make money," he's like, "Oh, don't give up so easily. You see, like you're a woman, you should try to uh, just become a teacher." You know, he imagined oh, wow. being a professor is like this easy life, and I was like, "No, it's not. Like you can get a job <laughs> or something." Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, my I think my parents were kind of surprised, but um, I think that they were very supportive, like because they always believe, you know, like whatever I'm really passionate about, like there's no way, like kind of dissuading from doing that. So growing up, I've always been like very, just kind of intense, like in terms yeah. of like pursuing the the things that I wanted. And actually, coming to America, my parents didn't want me to come to America at all, so <laughs> I actually took the SAT secretly without telling my parents <laughs> in my sophomore year because. My parents were like, oh, Taiwan is great. Why do you have to go to America? Like, would the whole family stick together? Like, because mm -hmm. the Asian ideas, like, the family is, like, really close. And 
stuff like mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. I think it was actually very hard for my parents that I, I came to America. But I just feel like it's kind of a calling that um, yeah. I want to uh, like build a different life. And I believe that's really sort of at the core of a lot of Asian entrepreneurs is this desire, you know, maybe certain dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction like the corporate system or like some mm-hmm. racism or but I think that entrepreneurship is really a powerful tool for many people to kind of like overcome all kinds of social and cultural and financial mm-hmm. barriers to, mm-hmm. um, to achieve their dreams. Definitely. So, yeah. Just out of curiosity too, like, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, your dad had a perception of what career should a woman take. And we're kind of curious about that. I mean, has there been any sort of barriers or any, any, any situations inside your real estate career that you felt like, you know, you were at a disadvantage or no one took you seriously? Like, you have those situations like that where, you know, I, I don't want to say like, like, just because you're a woman, you know, but, you know, obviously real estate is a very male-dominated field. And what, what your dad told you too, like, what do you, what kind of challenges do you face in real estate as a real, like a really prominent, strong real estate woman? Like, how did you overcome that? Yeah. And just to add on top of that, I think, um, you know, Brian brings up a great point. There is a glass ceiling or the bamboo ceiling, they call it in the Asian culture, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it doesn't apply to only corporations. It applies to industries, every type of industry. So very curious, you know, did you ever have any instances where you did notice, you know, some things that happened to you because you were, you know, a woman or a member of a minority as an Asian? Yeah. Yeah, I think these are um, great questions. I will say that from my standpoint, I don't feel like there's some specifically discrimination, like at least in the real estate sales industry, in the real estate investment world, discrimination against being Asian or female. But there's, I think, discrimination against like young people. Because like, mm-hmm. sometimes like people, you know, they might feel like, oh, you look really young. I think I experienced it more in my earlier years. I, I don't think I have much of that these days, but um, probably because I'm getting old now. But <laughs> no. yeah. yeah, when I was first getting into it, um, I, I did feel that um, like sometimes people feel, oh, you're really young and stuff like that. How long have you been doing this? But then, mm-hmm. you know, like once you prove that you have that experience level and track record, and people, oh, wow, you, you, you do know a lot and you've done a lot of cool things and people actually become more impressed with that. And actually, I think that that's one of the wonderful things about like um, the real estate industry is that I think that there's no discrimination against like your accent or your gender and stuff like that. I think that because real estate is a kind of world where you're hired based on your knowledge and also like when you make deals, people are looking at the numbers, people are looking at, you know, what you're saying and, you know, the property and, and things like that. So I actually think that even the fact that I have a foreign accent, sometimes I think it adds to like some sort of advantage because like in mm-hmm. the Boston real estate market, like sometimes there's a perception that, you know, foreign Asians are like, like come from rich families or like cash rich or something. So mm-hmm. like when you go to open house or like people, oh yeah, yeah, sure. You know, very excited. <laughs> I actually think strangely, like in the real estate industry, there's probably like putting Asians on the pedestal. <laughs> I thought was, was, I like that because I feel that, you know, in the corporate world, like you heard stories all the time of like Asians getting passed over for opportunities, but in the real estate, probably the opposite. And I would say that females probably have uh, an advantage in terms of negotiations because like, you know, we're usually like a lot of time can like just be more tactful or people just think, oh yeah, people kind of like 
let down their guard, or, like not really as aggressive when they negotiate with females. So I think that there's different ways in which we could work with the gender dynamics to our advantage. But and not saying that males don't have advantages, but they just have a different dynamic that they can work with. But I think that I, I like real estate that we can in real estate we can uh, just kind of work with different things and different personal attributes too. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that you are able to see it from that perspective because I think that not a lot of people can see it from that perspective, and you can see those advantages and opportunities that you can possibly get as a woman, as an Asian woman, you know? So yeah. um, I just, I'm curious too about like, when you first got into real, your real estate career, mm-hmm. they say that, I forgot what statistic is, but the dropout rate for your first year being a real estate agent is super high because there's a lot of work up front. It's not as yeah. fun as you think it is. Like, how did you overcome these first challenges? And what was your first business transaction like when you're like, oh, wow. I did it. This is a career that I want to go into, kick butt at it, get to the top, which you are at the top. Like, what was that first stepping stone like in like going to real estate? Yeah, um, I feel like in my earlier years, I sort of leveraged like because um, and again that probably goes into the idea that having international perspective or background experiences could be really helpful. But when I got first started in the business, I leveraged a lot of the, because I went to um, like the most prestigious university in Taiwan. So I leveraged the alumni network actually, that there's alumni from over the world and um, a lot a lot of those in Boston. So at first I leveraged those connections and there's a lot of people who did really well that they invest in real estate for decades and build out net worth. So um, like I help these people buy more properties and like first time buyers, a lot of them, they're like when they came to Boston, they're like, oh yeah, you know, Tanya went to the same school as me and Tanya is also from Taiwan, I with Tanya. So I think there's a lot of that like in the earlier years. But then as I grew in my career, my clientele actually became very diverse. I work with many non-Asians, you know, like in the later years. So I think that probably on the lucky side, like for for me, because I know that a lot of real estate agents, when they first started out, maybe they didn't necessarily have those connections, but I would definitely encourage others that if they want to go into real estate, try to look into the unique niche that they have and um, turn those niche into like their sort of baseline Mm -hmm. clientele. And then from there, just build more and more experiences and, and then go from there i mean that's that's really good advice you know like for people just starting out into real estate as well like leverage the network that you have already and that's, that's exactly what you did you know you reached into your alumni network really established your name you did a kick butt job and you started diversifying that's a great mm-hmm. tip for people just starting out as a real estate agent you know let's yeah. talk to your investment side like at what point inside your real estate career did you be did you did you start thinking hmm you know, we should start buying some investment properties. And what was the process like for you? Yeah, so I think after I started taking investment courses, I just had this idea that, oh, yeah, I got to buy investment properties. And so I started investing in real estate in 2015. That, that was actually when I bought my first home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is wow. where Harvard and MIT are located. So like the market was super hot. I mean, it still is. But um, at the time, I was like, oh, seeing the rapid appreciation, I was like, oh, yeah, then I should invest more in this area because I saw the value of my own home go up a lot. So I actually, um, because I also had a lot of savings and stuff like that from uh, working in real estate, and I just decided, okay, I'm going to refinance my home and, and then uh, put towards the the down payment of the next home. So it kind of went from there. And, and so 
I refinanced a few times and then uh, like, and then afterwards I started buying multifamily. But I was thinking, yeah, multifamily, you can uh, leverage the higher unit count, the same roof and, and, um, and then the numbers work out better that way. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, that, that was kind of how I started. Wow. That, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. I'm very curious, you know, did you, when you decided to go into real estate, you know, did you have any, um, I know you dropped out of your PhD to go into real estate, but did you have any like sort of setbacks in in terms of your mindset? Like, oh, I'm going to go just 100% into real estate or did you, were you like already getting your real estate license while you were doing your PhD? Yeah. What sparked the real estate yeah. thing too? Like how that, how did, how did the idea, how did the idea come about? Yeah. Cause for AHN, a lot of our members, you know, we have a lot of members who want to be aspiring entrepreneurs, but they're, you know, very afraid to make that first jump. Right. And they're either in the situation where they're, you know, thinking about dropping out of school and going into their side business or they are thinking about leaving their nine to five and going into their side business full time. So I'm very curious about your mindset at that time. And you know, what was your mentality at that time? Or if you were just like very confident, you know what, I'm just going to put 100% into real estate and just, you know, leave my PhD behind. Yeah, I, I feel like when I first started, so I, I dropped out and I just took some time off. I decided to just study for my license. And I think I got my license within a couple of weeks. But um, it was definitely scary because um, I, mean, I had no track record at the time. And I knew that the real estate agent career had a very high failure rate in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But my mindset was, it's not like buying a franchise where you're dropping down $300,000. And being a real estate agent is technically like just spend five hundred dollars getting that license, and that's it. And if I fail, I'll just try a different, different business, anyways. So I feel like the state was not very high, mm-hmm. and also I was really young at the time. So I, for me, it was scary, but at the same time, I also feel like I knew what it was getting into. I decided to take that risk, and it wasn't easy because um, I think that for many agents starting out, like obviously they have to, they have a lot to prove. So they have to like, you know, like, I did this, that, but, but at the same time, I think I was also lucky in the sense that because I was also buying my first home and I bought my investment property. And so people saw that you were actually preaching, like you're preaching what you teaching. So I'm sorry, the English expression didn't say it right. But uh, anyways, mm-hmm. just the idea that you're kind of doing what you're sharing with other people. So, um, yeah. yeah. How, do say, how do you say that expression yeah. in Taiwanese? What's that? How do you say that same expression in Taiwanese? I don't think there's any uh, sort of. <laughs> that's why I mess it up. And actually, later, since I'm working on my my memoir, which is gonna be published next year, I can probably read the first chapter for my book where I'm, I share my experience, like buying my first apartment building. So uh, you guys can be one of my first readers if you want. Okay. Yeah, I would love to learn more about your book. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit more about the book and you know what type of stories and you know what we can expect from the book and when that's going to be coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I got a lot of questions from my career. People asking me, why did you go into real estate? And actually, you were a former literature major. Like, that's such a huge difference between, there's such a huge difference between literature and real estate. So mm-hmm. why did you do that? And because I got asked these questions so many times, and I started to think, okay, maybe it's time to t- turn this idea into a book. And people might find that interesting. And Actually, I have to say, like, even my journey to America itself, like, when I first came to America, I was in Texas, which is, like, the 
exact opposite of Taipei, which is my hometown, where nobody, like very few people drive in Taipei because like public transport transportation system was so good. Like when you, I live on the 13th floor of an apartment, like a apartment complex with many units. And like when I want to get my hair done, I just go downstairs. There's like a hair salon, like downstairs. And I just, okay, I'm going to get my hair done at 2 p.m. And I then take the elevator and go up, go back upstairs. Mm -hmm. And then like downstairs, like grocery stores and then the, the um, park was like three minutes walk away away from my home and then suburb was like three minutes walk as well so everything is like super close and paul's office and everything you possibly need is like within the five minute walk of everything it's very dense so like when i came to texas i was like oh i because i didn't know how to drive so i was like oh i couldn't get anywhere <laughs> so i have to like you know leech over my friends like driving mm -hmm. around like blasting their country music like there he is like the singing festivals and stuff like that. So it was kind of an interesting cultural experience. And because I was an English major, I also obviously had a pretty bad accent at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I, most of my classmates were white. So I just thought, oh, I was different from everyone. But then at the same time, I feel like, because in a sense, I feel lucky to come to America as an adult because I didn't go through like sort of the younger, like in elementary school, a lot of people, like a lot of Asian American friends told me, oh, when I was in elementary school, like, people making fun of like, you know, squinty eyes or like whatever, just making fun of yeah. stuff like that. And for me, I'm sure people think funny things about me too when I have my like pretty bad accent. They didn't say anything about it because like mm -hmm. they were all adults in college. And so, <laughs> so luckily I was spared from that kind of taunting. But So I actually decided I'm going to market myself as this cool Asian kid who's different from everyone. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I just thought it was interesting. And professors were like, oh, yeah, you write very interesting. You have a very interesting perspective like in your paper. Because, mm -hmm. like, you're, you know, I, growing up in Taiwan, we study a lot about Confucianism and, like, different mm -hmm. Chinese classical literature. So, like, just yeah. kind of approaching literature from, like, different perspective and stuff like that and like when I couldn't finish my assignment because I, when I couldn't like keep up with the heavy readings in English and I just like okay we spark notes like first yeah. sentence and try to go to class and sound like mm -hmm. <laughs> which I'm sure a lot of people do but um, yeah, yeah I kind of talk about like a lot of my experiences like from mm -hmm. Taiwan to America and how I ultimately came to accept myself because like when I first came to America I want to be an Asian American I want to lose my accent mm -hmm. and I really hated my accent mm -hmm. but then after over 10 years in America I still have an accent <laughs> and I realized you know what actually it's time to just accept the fact that you know I have an accent but it's great because <laughs> mm -hmm. it's kind of like a signature or something right. and yeah. you know, people oh where are you from you know and I'm from Taiwan and that's an opportunity to tell stories so yeah. I started to accept myself, like pretty much um, like a few years after I came to America and I realized, oh, you know, like we're all different and, you know, different voices and different perspectives and mm -hmm. it's all great. Yeah. yeah, I really like the fact that you are taking more pride in with your Asian heritage, you know, mm -hmm. like the fact that you're like, you know, this is a cool thing. That's, I, feel like, I feel like that's how a lot of us are feeling right now. Like mm -hmm. it's cool to be Asian right now and we're... Right. No longer ashamed of our heritage. We actually want to own up to it and learn more about it. You know, it's becoming more mainstream, which is a great thing. Which is the reason why we're pushing for all these podcasts to happen because we want to amplify voices like yourself, and right. that we are successful. That it is our time to make a difference. Yeah, 
And very similar to your story, I think a lot of Asian Americans feel the same way that they were, you know, ashamed to be Asian when they were Not younger. Asian Americans, Asians around the I world. I think, yeah, Asians around the world, they were ashamed to be Asian, but it's more so accepted in Asia, obviously. Like but Australia. In, yeah, and... yeah. But now that we're grown up, it's like we are proud to be Asian. And I'm so glad you see it in a way where, you know, you're proud to have your accent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's really important for us to, you know, have those, those um, traits and those characteristics that define who we are you know definitely I love the fact that you combine the best of your both worlds you know you spent a lot of time studying English mm-hmm. and now you're using you're making your use of it you know you're using like English abilities to write your book in real estate and I love that I love when that happens too because I feel like as an entrepreneur like all your past experiences you'll draw upon them to get to the next level it doesn't matter what you did in the past it'll come in handy one day right you know? So I really love that you're combining both worlds. And I guess for, for like the next segment of the podcast, we do want to talk a little more about your real estate investments and what kind of tips and advice can you give all of us? Um, can you kind of walk us through some of your investments that you make, like some of the numbers you're looking at per se? How do you dictate like this is the neighborhood that you want to invest in? And what's the great like ROI and IRR that you're typically looking for inside of apartment investing? Yeah, I would say that it really depends on the person's goals because a lot of people go into real estate, they look at cash flow uh-huh. um, because they want to retire. They want to make sure that, you know, after you pay, let's say 20, 25% or 20% is the, um, the the typical amount that people put down. And a lot of people want to cash flow a certain number after the mortgage is paid off. And But then those properties tend to be like in the low in the higher cabaret and lower demand areas and where sometimes it's higher risk profile in terms of the time kind of tenants that you get because um like a lot of times um the reason why it's cheap is because it's lower demand so that's also one thing to consider and whereas like in boston like in the more desirable neighborhoods where you're gonna see bidding wars and multiple offers even during COVID, like in march and april i was getting like multiple offers for a lot of properties that i was working with i was actually surprised myself i was like oh come on this is COVID. <laughs> why are we still having like all these like bidding wars and um in those areas you're you're lucky to get like even four to five percent cap rate, but then at the same time, it's also lower risk profile because, um, like when you see that even during COVID and it's still getting pretty steady rent and the kind of tenants that you work with tend to be people who go to Harvard MIT or like young professionals in those areas, mm-hmm. then and also still have like people buying in those neighborhoods, and um, you're gonna get low cap rate and um. Hi. Don't know what a low cap rate or what is a cap rate? Can you explain to them? Yeah, the cap rate is um the the rent the rent ratio and the uh, the purchase price. So I add also minus the uh, property management expense and the um, the various expense and stuff like that. Okay. But yeah, that's that's cool. That's pretty cool how you start picking the property that that you want to invest into. And you're absolutely right. You know. The property is it gives you a higher cash and cash return or a higher ROI. More than likely, it's going to be in a, a C or D neighborhood. Which for you listeners that don't know what that is, it means um, uh, neighborhoods that aren't aren't most desirable for investors, uh, but they do offer the best returns. Mm-hmm. But you have to keep in mind that these type of neighborhoods, even though they offer really good returns, your repair costs will be very high <laughs> and frequent. 
So it's something you have to be well aware of. But yeah, I mean, walk us through. Actually, I want to share. So I have a friend, like, in his 70s. Actually, one of my early mentors. Mm -hmm. um, he, like, bought, like, millions of dollars of real estate, like, from when he was younger. And now they're all, like, tens of millions of dollars worth. And so he shared with me that in the early years, he didn't actually know which areas were going to appreciate most. So he invested like a lot in the sort of what you call the C and D neighborhoods and a lot also in the sort of class A, class B neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And then what he found was that like over the course of 30 years, the ones that were in the class C and D neighborhoods, because of a lawsuit he had to deal with and the tenants not paying rent and stuff like that, even this is kind of like a cautionary tale because a lot of times, um, the seller side, they sell it pretty well. Like, oh, you know, 8% cap rate, 9% cap rate. Which yeah. Today's market like magically very amazing. But um, actually, the a lot of times you're working with the core. And in Massachusetts, it's a pro-tenant state. So it's difficult to start the uh, eviction process and if the tenants don't pay rent. Mm -hmm. So he actually found that over the course of 30 years, the ones that in the class A and B neighborhoods are appreciated and had the most returns. So, um, so yeah, he actually his son was the one who shared that with me. So uh -huh. I found that interesting. But of course, like history doesn't always necessarily repeat itself in mm -hmm. real way. So, um, mm -hmm. but it's just something that we we can reference. Yeah, it's a huge discussion in his own own right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Are you um, currently investing only in the Boston area, or are you investing in out of state properties as well? Yeah, so currently I I only invest in the Cambridge area, but um, I actually like look at neighborhoods from many parts of the world. Like before, I um, like invested in each properties, and also obviously whenever I go to Taiwan, I look at the properties there as well, different areas, and always checking out new opportunities. But um, for me, the reason not that I discount other neighborhoods because I actually think there are many markets in the world that are worth looking mm -hmm. at but personally the reason why i invested in my local market was because i built my property management team from early on and mm -hmm. i decided that i could leverage the proximity of all the properties like in terms of manage management and also um, like managing my client's property so i decided to combine those and um and build on build from I love, there. I love your resourcefulness. You know, yeah. you're always building on top of things that, that you gain throughout the, throughout your journey. Yeah, I mean, so on top of being a real estate investor, a broker, and an author, you know, while we're on the topic now, you're also a property manager, and would love to know, you know, how you got into property management, and you know what that process looks like. Yeah, so I think that property management is critical for anybody who aspires to be a landlord. And I always encourage my clients that if you're buying your first one or two properties, it's best to manage it yourself, actually. And the reason for that is because then you get to learn the process and understand what it's like to work with contractors and how much things cost and what it's like to work with the tenants directly and how to manage those relationships. Mm -hmm. And so I encourage people to to build their own property management like like system. Mm -hmm. And it, when uh, people start to build more and more units, that I think that it's great to kind of combine our resources, leverage the economy of skill. Like, okay, yeah, obviously we don't have time to manage 10 units, 20 units, 30 units. So mm -hmm. um, we start to build what we call like departments or just different like um, division of labors. And um, like people in charge of, you know, like this part of the property management or like, like kind of task runners for different things or like lease managers and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I think that property management is actually a good skill for anybody who wants to be landlords and 
and yeah, in terms of cutting costs and also learning the basics. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. And you know, we understand that you do have a real estate portfolio of five million dollars. That's really impressive. What is this portfolio comprised of? Are they all apartments? Are they single-family houses? Are they, like you mentioned before, are they houses around the world? Like, how how are you breaking these your portfolio down? Yeah. So actually, when I first started out, because I sort of started in the traditionally the higher price market, the market of Cambridge. I actually only bought condos. So I bought two condos in my like 2015 and 2016. And then once I had more capital and resources, and also the landlord history, I started, I bought my first apartment building. It's a free unit, um, free family in Cambridge. And actually right after I bought that building, they knocked down this like library and then built a really large library and also schools and office buildings. And, mm-hmm. Stuff like that. So it was a rapidly developing neighborhood. So it very like double digit appreciation. Um, and then after that, I also uh, continued to work as an agent, obviously like um, various um, gigs. And then uh, bought my second free family also in Cambridge. Actually, that was like a family walk from where I live. Mm-hmm. So I think that I earlier on, I had a more conservative mindset that I wanted to kind of you know, consolidate the, the properties, but I def- I'm definitely open to like expanding like towards different parts and like diversification and stuff like that. But I, I just feel like early on, I, I had this idea that the first 5 million should be like in the like sort of conservative neighborhood, you have your base. And then once you have that, then you can work towards the, you know, what you call the class C or D, but um, like, Definitely just different levels of risk mitigations and yeah. like that, different, think, different stages yeah. of our careers. I agree. I think if I could own a couple of units in Cambridge, I would do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of have an understanding that Cambridge is not a cheap area, very similar, uh, one of the most expensive markets out there. So congratulations on that. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So we also know that you are the president of the Taiwan Youth Chamber of Commerce in New England, which is um, an organization committed to providing entrepreneurship, education and networking for young professionals. And so we'd love to know your involvement with them, you know, how you became president and what type of things you, you guys are working on over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I actually um, started by attending a lot of the events hosted by um, TYCCNE because um like, I think I just like to network with people and meet new people. And I also feel that being a Taiwanese, um, I would like to give back to this community as well. So that this community definitely has a lot of people from Taiwan or just people who've been living here for a while or born raised here. So, mm-hmm. um, so initially, I just kind of saw this organization as a way of networking. And then since I attended pretty much every event above this organization, so actually the previous president, Amy O, she invited me to be the next president actually just last year. So, um, so that's how I became the president. And we actually, we had a lot of events like, you know, pitching like business ideas. And we had fundings from the, uh, the, the uh, Taiwanese Business Association, which is a sort of older generation immigrant community that they, they've been living here for a long time. And they frequently provided funding to, to help with the, uh, the youth chamber organization. 
So we had a lot of fun events that we planned and hosted and also invite different speakers of the community to like share the experience. And actually, I think be right before COVID, we hosted this event where we invited this um, franchise owner to um, share his franchise experience. I think he had like multiple franchises. So he was just telling us about like how he bought franchises and how he got good deals and then how various aspects of the, the operation. So I think it's a great opportunity for young entrepreneurs to like, just be exposed to people who are like seasoned like investors or franchise owners. And, Definitely. Like, and I guess, I guess one of the biggest takeaways from our entire interview right now, it's, you know, I feel like if you're, if you're focused your abilities on one thing, get really good at that. Mm -hmm. And it's very transferable to everything. Yeah. It's like, because what they say is if you're, if you do one thing well, you do everything well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, that's the case of you, you know, you came from a very strong academic background, you know, you're a PhD, you did that really well. And now you're like, okay, how can I focus my, the same energy in other things? Mm -hmm. And because you did one thing so well, you have your parents' confidence that if whatever you choose to do, you're going to do it really well. Yeah. You know, I think that's a gateway for all of us listening here. It's, you know, your life would not follow like the path that you intended to be most of the time. But mm -hmm. if you focus yourself, just growing the skills, having discipline, having a vision, being determined, being gritty, you know, that's very transferable to anything else you choose to do in the future. And that's one of the key points of like convincing your parents that picking an unconventional path is the right path to go. Mm -hmm. You know, because you have like your confidence to, to begin with and whatever you choose to do, they fully believe that you're going to be successful. And that's what I got away from this interview. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, just hearing your story, it's incredibly inspirational. You know, like Brian said, I feel like you've taken, you know, experience, your experiences and you've applied, you know, those good habits to every point of your life. And now you're, you know, building out your own story and putting that to paper and sharing that with, you know, all of your general audience. So I think that's really inspirational. And so, you know, we'd love to ask, you know, what type of advice would you give to an aspiring entrepreneur? They can be, you know, in the real estate business, or they can just be an aspiring entrepreneur in general and would love to know your advice for them. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think that um, one of the advice, piece of advice I can give to people is whatever business that you're trying to undertake, um, try to talk to as many people as possible who did that business and did really well. Because like earlier on in my career, I actually tried many different businesses. I mean, I had businesses that lost money or just didn't make money, waste my time and <laughs> things like that. So I did various things. But at the same time, I'm very grateful for all the successes and the failures that I had because um, um, we can all learn from like different kinds of businesses. And I think I like also like people who try to like diversify their business experience and um, real estate is one kind of investment but there's also many different kinds of investments and we learn from different kinds of entrepreneurs and i think in the in the end we're all kind of have the same mindset like we're very positive and you know we try to overcome like obstacles so i definitely think that learning from people like who have done it or um like more recent in the industry is, is very helpful Love exactly. it. Yeah, that's very important, especially in our community in AHN too. I feel like as Asians, we tend to not want to help, get help from other people. And it's like, 
well, most of the time it's from our parents telling us like, you know, just focus on yourself and, you know, you don't need help from anyone else. But in actuality, we do need help from everyone. And the more help we can get from everyone else and the more help we give to everyone else, that's how we're going to succeed together. So love that. That's very sound advice. Um, for our listeners, how can we learn more about you, Tanya? Um, so yeah, I'm very excited to um, share with you guys the book that I'm writing. And I started writing about um, two months ago and trying to commit to a few, like one or two chapters per week and working with an editor and recently got an offer from a publisher. So wow. I'm going to read the first chapter of the book if you guys want. Sure. That would be amazing. Yeah, I would love Ooh. that. Yep. Do we have um, an estimated timeline of the, of the, of the book? Um, so let's see, I'm just going to open up the chapter here. Yeah. You hear that guys? You get a bonus chapter. <laughs> it's it's crazy, you know, I love it. Yeah. And while Tanya is pulling that up, um, any social media handles you'd like to share with us, Tanya? The social media handles? Yeah. Any Instagram or LinkedIn where people can reach out to you and learn more about you? Yeah, so I have my real estate website, tanyarealestate.com. So it's my website that has a lot of blog articles that I share with people, like all the things that you need to know about, like first-time home buyers or the Boston real estate market, or even just the basics of being a, oh, sorry, is the phone disconnected? Oh, it's still there. Okay, perfect. So yeah, um, various resources for people who want to be landlords and um, different real estate stuff so the blog articles i wrote um and then also my linkedin tanya Wu, as well as my i have instagram as well tanya Wu boston and also uh my facebook tanya Wu. so i want everything basically okay great amazing all right we will leave those links um in our show notes for this podcast but it was amazing hearing your story tanya and thank you so much for being on today's podcast show wait are we still in the bonus from tanya yeah we are okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think she's pulling it up <laughs> okay great great so i have the chapter here um so i'll just start reading so okay yeah the first chapter is uh, the experience of buying my first apartment building i haven't named the chapter yet so um you guys are welcome to provide any feedback and stuff like that okay cool. so the setting was in boston 2016 I walk into a room full of middle-aged white men with suits. I was buying an apartment building that cost seven figures in US dollars. Before I entered that room, I was turned down by 20 banks that refused to finance this investment. The reasons were insufficient income and lack of capital. A 26-year-old girl from Taiwan, I was a literature PhD dropout, turned away from every job I applied for just a year ago and had no real estate background before I got my license. I surveyed the room. In the center of the room was a white marble table. Sitting at the head of a table was a chubby man with glasses. Next to him was a tall, bold man with a polished shirt who looked like his psychic. Shit, I can't believe what I'm just getting myself into, I thought to myself, feeling like an alien who was suddenly thrown onto a different planet. A petite Asian girl with a baby face. I probably looked the same age as the men's teenage daughters. Hi, Freddie. It was very nice to finally meet you, I said formally, shaking the hand of the claim leader. Freddie was a point of contact among his partners who purchased this building before. They wanted to sell all the units as condos. 
I offered to buy the whole building because I had a business vision that I believe would change life forever. My plan would generate much higher returns than selling these units as condos. No one believed in my business move at the time. Almost everyone thought that I was about what I was about to do, including taking a six-figure loan on that project, was crazy and risky. My husband Chris thought we couldn't execute this idea due to lack of capital and reserves. I walk into the deal anyways, dragging Chris into it. Every superhero or heroine must have a sidekick to look powerful. Given my lack of actual sidekick at the time, Chris would have to do. Besides, having a 33-year-old white dude with a beard on my team made me look older. 30 seemed old enough to me at the time. It's nice to put your face and your voice together, said Freddie, before sitting down and pulling out a sheet of paper. Same here, we've been planning an investment of this nature for a long time. I said smugly, slouching over the chair with my legs spread wide open. The persona I was trying to project was suave, relaxed, and in control. The more unlikely we seem as qualified buyers, the more confident we must appear. Chris, aren't you excited? I turned towards Chris, who nodded confidently. We have discussed your rather creative plan to buy the whole building. I just want to go over several moving pieces. Let's talk about the LCs, taxes, our plan Bs if this appraisal falls through, and our plan Cs for the worst case scenario. Freddie went on. Let me remind you of the strength of our investors, I said slowly and deliberately, and began my pitch. The reality was the quote-unquote investors didn't exist yet, but I believe my business proposal was so compelling, I would eventually secure the fund to finance the seven-figure project before the transactions closed, despite the fact that I heard nothing but rejection from banks up to that point. The Boston real estate market in 2016 was booming and competitive for buyers. New buildings and developments were going up like spring bamboo. Hordes of investors from China flooded the area to buy investment properties. At open houses and showings full of chattering Asians, it at times felt like a Chinese supermarket. Every week, well-dressed Asians with their Dior handbags and Porsche visited these properties for sale. Some were buying properties every week. While I was walking down the street of a field development project, a white young man nearby taunted, by the whole fucking block. Despite the racial stereotypes in the Boston real estate scene, I was not one of these rich Asians. No one in my family had any real estate experience. Both my parents had nine to five jobs and I was the first in my family to pursue a real estate career. Nevertheless, I knew the white man sitting at a marble table didn't know this. Many in real estate think of the foreign Chinese as cash rich, and I leverage that to instill confidence. Clearly, having to quote-unquote make it as a former foreign student studying English literature had a lot to do with real estate sales and negotiations later. I used to speak eloquently in class about my opinions on great expectations when I didn't read the book, due to being a foreign student who couldn't keep up with the heavy English readings. I would read summaries of the book, peruse the first sentence of every chapter, pick a few random great quotes, and then talk just as confidently in class as students who were native speakers who seemed to have read more of the book than me. I learned to quickly gather information with laser-sharp precision, identify arguments that compel people, and spread them out in 30 minutes and 30 seconds. I'm still concerned that your overseas capital won't arrive in time. We have to stick to our timetable because our partners are paying carrying costs. Our first contractors took our deposit over 100K and ran off. 
Nelson was supposed to charge at cost and get equity in the deal, but he ended up charging above cost to get paid more. Freddie went on, his sidekick nodded sheepishly. You're in very good hands. We're a family business and we have done this before. We've never had a deal fall through. I wasn't lying. A year ago, Chris and I purchased our first home and we were family. When I made a statement like that, the facts backed it up no matter how inconsequential. Freddie, I know this all sounds conventional, but plain B's and C's were already what I had in mind. We could pull it off, Chris added, staring Freddie in the eye. Freddie went on with the logistics. At that point, I knew he was going to sell the building to us despite multiple offers. A month later, Chris and I walked away from the closing table with a deed of this building. That was my first apartment building. I ended up convincing one of the mortgage companies Freddie referred to finance the deal. Within two years, Chris and I ended up making back the money we raised and invested plus additional profits. The purchase became my foundation for subsequent real estate ventures, some similar, some different. Investors impressed with the deals that I did work with me in one transaction after another. My career took off from there. The building I bought in 2016 was a life-changing deal. I went from an unemployed literature PhD dropout to an entrepreneur with over five million worth of assets under my name within five years. Most people these days knew me as a social butterfly and true businesswoman. Many did not know that I used to be a completely different person. So that's the end of this chapter. Wow, that's amazing. Wow, yeah. Yeah, thanks so much. Hope for yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, we appreciate the preview of yeah. the book. We're super excited too, and you know, especially when it comes out, we'll be there to uh, support you and buy a chap, uh, buy a book, <laughs> buy a chapter, <laughs> buy a book, buy a chapter. You can buy a chapter. <laughs> buy a you buy two, two more chapters. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, we're very excited for all the great things that are happening for you. Tanya, and we're very excited for your book. Um, it was incredible hearing your story. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. Yeah, yeah we appreciate it, Tanya. Me too. Awesome. Thank you. Great. Thank All right. You. Have a great one. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. Hey, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.